0: You're listening to a Monday Breakfast podcast on 3CR 8:55 a.m. Thanks for tuning in. 3CR is broadcasting from the lands of the Kulin Nations, true owners, custodians, and caretakers of the land from which we broadcast. We pay our respects to elders, past, present, and emerging, and recognise that sovereignty has not been ceded and a treaty never signed. I
1: 3CR
2: Breakfast.
1: Oh, Alternative news, analysis Grab and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am oh, to 8:30am. <laughs> Early double. Wrap your, your hands. <laughs>
0: Good morning, Judith. And good morning, Alice. How are you today? Uh, I'm well, thanks. I'm missing Dean a little bit. He's usually yeah around, but Sad he... not to have Dean with us today, isn't it? Yeah, but he's um, doing things with family, which is fantastic. And he's uh, probably still in bed. Yeah, I, I think wonder he if he might he's listening. In. <laughs> <laughs> if you are, hi, if you Dean. are. Hi, Dean. We miss <laughs> you. Yeah. 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 So, Alice, it's really lovely out there. I mean, it's I September the 2nd and the weather kind of is reflecting, at least today it is anyway, that yeah. uh, spring is uh, really upon us. I
3: know. I don't want to get too excited just because every time it's nice outside, I'm like, ah, it's coming! We're not in winter anymore! And then it rains and I get sad again. But, no, I'm excited for this new weather
0: that seems well, to be, be on the horizon. for, for today. Exactly, She's and, and tomorrow today. I think is <laughs> tomorrow. <laughs> tomorrow, and maybe tomorrow. Wednesday and maybe as well, Wednesday. and perhaps until Friday. Yes, yeah. yeah. I can't remember. I did check to see you know which day it's going to get cool again, but uh, yeah, lovely this morning to come out it was yeah and so what a what did you do on the weekend like how was your weekend so i
3: saw um so we're going to actually be speaking to a playwright today oh at boy. some point in the show um mm-hmm. and i went to see this play on the friday night and it's called australian realness it's um it's about it's sort of a naturalistic family drama that turns into something else. A bit
0: gothic. Yeah. Horror. It's a bit I mean, dark. I be it's, surprised. it's a
3: comedy but um and it and it well and truly is a comedy. But it is it has these really dark elements to it as well. Yeah. And yeah, well you when you're watching it you you know that you're watching something that you're gonna have to go and debrief afterwards. Like me and my friend had to go somewhere and we were like, right. <laughs> okay let's pick this apart so what it, did we so just it, see
0: so it affected you clearly it definitely affected yeah, me and
3: and the questions that that we left with which were totally intentional by zoe dawson who is the playwright were uh, were questions about class in australia and, oh, yes. and it's yeah. such an important thing to be talking about. And so I'm really looking forward to speaking to her at some point during the show. Yeah,
0: isn't it? She's coming on after 8, is that after right?
3: After 8, yes. Yeah. So 8.15, we're going to be talking to her. And, yeah, I'm very excited to yeah. ask her
0: some questions. Well, uh, keeping with uh, an artistic theme, our mm-hmm. whole uh, last half hour is going to be like that because we're also going to hear um, a piece by Omar Musa called Since Ali Died you may you may or may not rap i don't or, know oh, okay. i actually so don't know him a- at all Malaysian Australian, born in Australia, and he's a rap artist, but he's also a poet, and he's written a novel as well. So he's, yeah, he's pretty amazing, and uh, I was um, lucky enough to get tickets to the show and went along, because a lot of these shows, the shows have been sold out where he's traveled. And I bought the CD, as I am want. (laughs) 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 So we're just going to play that one piece and a little background to that. So all that's coming up after. Awesome. Looking forward to that. And what have we got before, right? Well, Juliet Fox, who's um, the coordinator of projects here at 3CR. I don't know if you know Juliet, of course. Yeah. Well, did you know she's really Dr. Juliet Fox? No. She completed a PhD last year. (laughs) And guess what she studied? What? Community radio. Oh, amazing. (laughs) No, Uh, I did not know this. It is, and now it's a book incredible yes on community radio and social change I convinced her to come to the studio with me last fri- Friday <laughs> she's
3: got no reason to say no oh, no she I was mean how kind. can you say no to uh, that it wasn't
0: it wasn't it wasn't even her day in the station she's part-time so she came in specially, which was really lovely so we did an interview about that and it was fascinating so um yeah well I'll leave that to later but just to Entice you. She interviewed um, participants here, like volunteers and workers from the present, but also from the very early days. But she didn't just do 3CR, Mm. she looked at 3CR and the radio station in Timor Leste that she had been a community volunteer international and supported them as they were setting up. So what she was wanting to do was kind of look inside um, community radio, and she wanted a kind of international as well as the local perspectives. Anyway, a very rich uh, thesis, and now it's a book. Wow. Oh, yeah. my
3: God. I had no idea. I feel so guilty. I always ask her the most ridiculous questions. <laughs> Dr. Like, Juliet, can you help me with the printer? Yeah, Indeed. I mean, yeah. yeah. No, no, but no,
0: just add doctor next time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm sure she won't mind.
3: Oh, gosh. And then before uh Juliet, at half past seven, we've got Dr. Sue Wareham as well. Mm. And we're going to be talking about... Australia joining a U.S. military operation in the Middle East.
0: Yes, very scary.
3: Very scary. Yeah. Um, and I'm, yeah, I'm just really interested in learning a bit more about that because that's something that mm. I'm, I'm not 100% familiar with. So Sue's going to be talking to us about that and really going into the details about why they, why they are
0: joining and what their commitments are. Mm, and I think she's uh, in the Medical Association <coughs> Prevention of War. Yes, is that right? Medical yeah. Association for the Prevention of War. Yeah, mm-hmm. and I know she's been involved quite a long time. So yeah, so she'll have a, I think, a huge and uh, interesting insight into yeah. that. I don't know if you notice that uh, the government has released its religious freedom set of laws suite of laws did that last Thursday and of course there's been huge response already and one of those people who responded or one of the groups that responded was Amnesty International so we're going to speak to Tim O'Connor who is a spokesperson for Amnesty about those laws and and what what needs to happen there so that's coming up as well um and you know what we have not thanked our previous show
3: Oh, Beyond Zero Emissions. That's the one. Always yeah. a great show. Yeah. And I actually work in the same office as Kurt, who is on the show. Oh, terrific. And, yeah, we often talk and I'm like, what have you got? What have you got this week? Ah, la, la, la. Yeah. yeah. And yeah, it's and great. it's
0: good to know what different people are doing. I mean, of course, we know that from from listening to the station, but actually to have a more in-depth, in-depth conversation around, okay, you know, how would you get that story? Or, yeah. yeah. It, no, it's
3: really interesting because um, every presenter or producer's way of going about their stories and what they want to speak about on their show is different. Yes. so um, so it's very interesting speaking yes. to somebody else about it
0: yeah for sure and of course um, as we have coming up with Juliet Fox too just interesting to see what she found out when she delved into it as, as an academic project but you know a couple of weeks ago we were talking about I think the Northern Territory Music Awards and I mentioned the wonderful song uh, Natural Woman by, by Ka'it who's Melbourne based a New Guinea Papua New Guinea background and I just thought this was the most fabulous song so we're going to hear a natural woman with Kai. Did it? Did it? Blind all, I was lined with all our songs to complicate their piano and guitar chords. Sing about kissing at midnight on a rooftop. That was Kait and it's spelled K A I I T, and natural woman. And uh, yeah, just check her out because <laughs> the voice is amazing. What a, an amazing song. And wasn't it beautiful? could can sit it, still
3: here, just dancing <laughs> away. That is incredible. You. <laughs> I love that. I've never heard of her before, but I'm going to research her
0: for yeah, sure. Yeah, for sure. Do that. It's great. And you're on 3CR, Monday breakfast.
3: Okay, so this is SheBop. And so is this. And this.
4: SheBop, a program that explores feminist issues. Beginning September 2nd,
1: tune in Mondays, 10.30am for a show where only women get to speak, but everyone
4: can listen.
0: And so yeah, good start to Monday. Is some some great start you. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So um Alice last Thursday, again, I don't know if you if you're aware of some of the debates around this, but the federal attorney general Christian Porter released a draft package of religious freedom. I almost feel like putting freedom in quotes, uh, <laughs> religious freedom bills, including a religious discrimination bill, the draft, all of these are draft. And their response to inquiries into the protection of religious freedom under Australian law. And they implement some of the recommendations of the expert panel on religious freedom, um, also known as the Ruddock Review, which was instituted, I think, like weeks if that, uh, after the vote for marriage equality. Civil society groups representing women, LB, uh, LGBTIQ plus people, people of color, um, have looked at the drafts and condemned the government's uh, draft, and particularly the religious discrimination, a proposed religious discrimination act, which is part of it. And Amnesty International described the bill in, in their press release um, that came out last Thursday as taking Australia back to the dark ages. So I caught up with Tim O'Connor on Friday. He's the spokesperson for Amnesty International and began by asking if Amnesty was surprised by the contents of the draft bills.
1: Well, it's extremely surprising. Obviously, this has been very divisive right, from the very beginning for many people in our community. Particularly, we, we were incredibly surprised and shocked to see that it targets you know, some of the, the most vulnerable Uh, members of our community, vilifying women, LGBTQI plus people, people of color, and others who who may be minorities uh, in the community.
0: You do say it's a license for religious groups to use their beliefs to condemn and attack groups and communities, such as the groups you just mentioned. Why is that? How does that do that?
1: It really puts the right of religious discrimination, which shouldn't be a right in the first place, uh, and puts it above other rights. And, you know, th- this is a missed opportunity because what we, try, what we need to see in Australia is a Human Rights Act. A Human Rights Act would actually ensure that we have a legislative mechanism to balance all of our rights. We wouldn't see the sorts of issues we've had with uh, hate speech of people like Israel Folau, which has really engendered much of this, you know, what we see as fairly shocking bill.
0: What's the background to this bill? Like, where did it come from?
1: Well, it's been kicking around for a long time. The Prime Minister, in before the previous election, got Philip Ruddick, who many may remember as a former Immigration Minister, um, to conduct uh, a review, and so they've taken the findings of that review, uh, which remains secret.
0: Just to clarify, that was a review of religious freedom?
1: That's correct, yes. yes. And that review then has been taken and they've released this draft disclosure bill. Um, just now, but it's, it's been an issue, and I guess the you know the interesting thing from our perspective is that this has been criticised right across the board. There's religious groups who are very concerned about it. You know, groups like Amnesty sit firmly in the centre of these debates.
0: And as as an international organisation, I guess Amnesty has seen this sort of thing in other countries.
1: Yeah, ab- absolutely, and I guess the the challenge here, with Australia being the, the only Western democracy that, uh, without a bill of rights, uh, you know, ag- again points to, to the the failure of this bill, what we need to ensure, instead of a spaghetti bowl of legislation that we have now, where it's incredibly difficult to disentangle, we need a very clear Human Rights Act or a Human Rights Charter to establish all of those rights and how we balance those rights between them and legislative mechanisms to do so. It's not, it's not beyond Australia to have Human Rights Act, obviously, we've seen leadership from um, states like Victoria, uh, the ACT has also come on board, and recently Queensland has also instituted the Human Rights Act. It's something that we need to actually deal with federally.
0: Yes, and I think that's been on the cards for many, many years. I mean, I think we can go back to the 80s almost. It was, I think, Labour Party policy at one stage.
1: Yeah, it, it has been policy of various governments at different times, unfortunately when that's usually been in opposition uh, from our view. But what we've seen, with the leadership of the states, is that the Bill of Rights is coming and this is an opportunity for the government to get in front of that. To ensure that we don't have religious discrimination, which you know, no society should have, that you should be free to practice your religion or if you aren't religious, to not practice your religion. What this bill does doesn't deal with any of those specific issues and certainly doesn't give us a way to balance the rights of discrimination and hate speech against practicing that religion.
0: will this right. bill allow, I mean what will it permit?
1: there's many steps that it needs to go through. But, you know, the the key impediment we see is really that it it vilifies, you know, specific groups in the community. or certainly opens the opportunity to vilify some of those groups.
4: And really we need
1: to be protecting the rights of of, of vulnerable groups or potentially vulnerable groups of minorities. And this bill doesn't go any, any way to actually addressing that problem.
0: Yes, and you've already touched on this, but how does it compare with other democracies, for example?
1: Australia is the only Western democracy in the world. I mean, the only Western democracy. We're an absolute laggard here in not having a Bill of Rights or equivalent. This is a a missed opportunity because it really is going to add to that spaghetti bowl of legislation that exists and not really give anyone any clear indication of how they should be free to practice their religion. Which ultimately should be a, a you know a tenant of every society to practice your religion or not to practice if you aren't religious. Yes. Uh, and this bill doesn't go any way at all to addressing that concern.
0: So it's even misnamed in a way from, from what you were saying. Uh, it's not about <laughs> it freedom is, at is, all.
1: It is, it is certainly uh, could be read as being very Orwellian.
0: Yes, and uh, so it kind of brings Australia in line with other totalitarian regimes, perhaps.
1: <laughs> well, I think. Or, is,
0: or am, I, uh, am I stretching it a bit too
1: far there? But you, could be, you could be stretching it a little bit far there. But I guess the ambition of this bill is to ensure that people are free to practice their religion. Amnesty, of course, has no problem with that. Um, people should be free to practice their religion. But in doing so, they're not free to discriminate. Yes. And should a religious institution not employ someone or sack someone because of their religious or non-religious affiliation, uh, that would be a huge shame. And it's not clear in this bill whether that will actually be protected.
0: Yes, and I think there's also been criticisms about the process for which it's going to go to Parliament. There's going to be a fairly short time for it to be debated.
1: Yeah, it does look like it. I mean, it's something that has kicked around for a long time. The government has been very secretive about it. They've they've snuck it out now, and their plan is to push it through. We understand the bill will be referred to committee and we'll have to go through that process where people have the opportunity to, to provide responses to it amendments to it but ultimately this bill shouldn't be amended it should be shelved we should be looking at a a human rights act uh, that ensures that every australian has all of their rights protected
0: yes and i guess coming in right after the postal vote on you know marriage equality it, it seems almost like it's set up to take away from what was gained through that vote
1: well i certainly think this bill needs to be seen in the context of that very divisive process that the australian community was forced to go through had a profound impact on many people i know i'm sure many yes. of the potential listeners also were very divided by the debate that occurred around that and personally vilified attacked um, that's not the community we want that's what a human rights act does it makes clear what all of our rights and our responsibilities are and that's why we need one from australia
0: and that is why we need one from for australia and that was Tim O'Connor, spokesperson for Amnesty International on the draft package of religious freedom bills released by Federal Attorney General Christian Porter last Thursday. And the urgent need, really, to do something about a Bill of Rights. Yeah, did you realize we didn't have one, Alice? I didn't, no. No, I mean, there's so many things to find out when you move to Australia. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Yes. And there's been some really good uh, articles in the conversation as well that are outlining, you know, uh, what's happening in those proposed bills and the problems with them. Mm. And one in particular, um, and we'll post these on our website as well, but it says the month-long consultation process for the bill must be used to make key changes or our discrimination laws will end up privileging people of faith Above all others, of course, there's the question of which faith yeah. is being privileged as well. So there's really a lot to look at, and um, yeah. So that that uh, the title of that article, it's by Liam Elphick and Alice Taylor, is "Religious Discrimination Bill is a mess mm-hmm. that risks privileging people of faith above others." Mm-hmm. So again, we'll make that link as well as to the Amnesty International press release. So. Lots of concern about what's going on there, and we do need to follow it.
3: Yeah, absolutely. We need to keep on on that story for sure. Do you know? Did, uh, did Tim say that they had debated it in Parliament, or um,
0: not very much? They're, no, they're about to. They're about to. It's going the the proposed bill, mm. and as he said, it has been quite secretive. And um, and you know, it was announced. I think it was December 2017, something like that. And we have had people on the show talking about even the proposal itself and what that's about and and the risks and the interpretation of religious freedom. Um, And that was um, just trying to think of someone from... Liberty Victoria came. Jamie Gardner came on and explained that, and we've run that story for sure. So, but now and, and during those consultations that were led by Philip Ruddock, who is quite a, a right-wing uh, person, one of the reasons probably he was chosen. Uh, but one of the, in the consultations, when people LGBTIQ plus people went along, they felt were often made to feel very uncomfortable with the kinds of questions that were asked. So. Back then, there were in 2018, there were a lot of questions about the whole consultation process around uh, the investigation into religious freedom. Lots of people say we didn't even need one, there hasn't been a problem, but it's almost a sop to the people that were upset that the marriage equality... Um, and postal vote, and it kind of went through with, you know, over 70% of Australians mm. supporting it. So this is, um, as, um, Tim said, is it kind of an old, this has been going on for a long time. Been a lot of secrecy around the consultation around what's coming out, what came out from that. And now we see the results of it in these draft bills. And, uh, certainly those people who are most mm-hmm. likely to be affected. By the, by the bill and has spoken out very clearly, very strongly on Friday. And, uh, yeah, it's something to watch very carefully. You know, what people are saying is it looks like the government wants this put through before Christmas. And I think it's the end of October we're looking at. So, um, yeah, it's something to keep on to and also to make your voice heard around yeah, mm. absolutely. Yeah, and big thanks to Tim O'Connor. I know he was very busy because so I put that press release out, and uh, I think a lot of people responded to them, and uh, I had 10 minutes, so, so he <laughs> spoke quickly. And, uh, but, yeah, I was really happy to be able to speak with him on Friday afternoon. Yeah, that was great. And yeah.
3: after the break, we're going to be speaking to Dr. Sue Wareham about something that also potentially – we have hasn't to keep been debated for on. too long in parliament, and mm. we need to keep an eye on as well. Yes. So stay tuned. But for the moment, we're going to take a listen to Theresa Duffy Richards by and by. And that was. Teresa Duffy Richards with "By and By." I love that song. It's, it's beautiful. Yeah, it's a really beautiful and song. and it's a nice Monday morning song yeah. too. Because
0: often on Mondays we're dealing with tricky and, and, and difficult things, so it's kind of nice to have a little reprieve in the middle. Yeah, of that. a little yeah. a
3: little five minute break. Yeah, yeah but now definitely. we're getting into into the risk. and now we're back. <laughs> yeah, we're back. Yeah, we're back with the hard stuff now. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So we're going to be speaking to Doctor Sue Wiram from the Medical Association for the Prevention of War and. We're speaking to her today mainly about Australia's, um, joining, Australia joining the U.S. military operations in the Strait of Hormuz, and we'll be talking about the commitments that they're going to be making towards this military action. Um, and my first question, so firstly, well, thank you for joining us, Sue.
2: It's a pleasure, Alice. Thank you very much.
3: Can you just tell us a little bit more about the Australian government's decision to join another military venture with the U.S.?
2: Well, this is deeply troubling, and Mm. there's no legitimate reason for Australia to be joining the military action. Um, It's a situation that's basically been created by the United States when President Trump withdrew from the Iran agreement, the Joint Comprehensive Program of Action, last year, and things have gone downhill in the relationship ever since then. So it's actually... uh, It's not a... um, not a a, uh, crisis that we should be joining in, in the way that Prime Minister Morrison has indicated, and he's said that we'll send a frigate and surveillance aircraft and some ADF personnel. And the stated reason, um, we always have to say stated Mm -hmm. reason because uh, goalposts seem to move in the wars we go to these days, but the stated reason is for freedom of navigation on the seas. But, I mean, you have to ask, well, uh, whose freedom um, are we going to be protecting Iran's freedom of navigation or is it only the U.S. to U.S. and allies, their freedom of navigation? So there are all sorts of unanswered questions and very worrying features that's going to be further destabilising and one would have thought we've already done enough damage in the Middle East.
4: Mm.
0: Yeah, I I totally agree, Sue, and it's really, um, really concerning that this is happening, and one would feel that um, Australia has learned, would have learned from past experiences, but that doesn't seem to be the case.
2: Well, the 2003 war, that was a, a total catastrophe at every level, and plenty of people knew it was going to be, as we know, there were a huge number of voices saying we must must not get involved in this conflict um, and it's going to be a disaster, particularly in a humanitarian sense because um, we know that the impacts of modern warfare are primarily on civilians and that's likely to be the case if the situation around iran escalates also but yes 2003 that was an illegal act of aggression Um, it was an invasion of another country it was hugely destabilizing people knew it was going to be civilians have largely paid the cost and the whole region has been grossly destabilized as a result and those responsible um, have not been taken to court over their illegal act of aggression Mm. so it seems that we have learnt absolutely zero, um, even when the costs of our military action are so high. We uh, we really really need to be looking at history, learning from the mistakes that have been made, and not repeating them.
3: Yeah, and what has Australia committed to this operation? And is this is this legal? What what Australia has committed? No.
2: No, it is not lawful. And it's fairly ironic. I mean, the government is constantly talking about the rule of law as something that is important and needs to be upheld. But whenever the rule of law seems to be inconvenient, then the Australian government, uh, along with the U.S., um, U.K., just, just disregard it. So, so I'm sorry the, to
0: interrupt there, but I can't help thinking about uh, a lot of conversation lately about China not obeying the rule right. of law, you know, in the South yes. China Sea. So when China yes. does it, it's shock horror, but uh, when uh, Australia and the U.S. do it, oh, well. Mm.
2: Yes, yes, it's uh, absolutely correct. The law seems to be something to be applied to other people. Um, as a tool to beat them over the head with when it suits our purposes. Mm -hmm. And, I mean,
0: it's not good either way. I mean, it isn't justified by the fact that the U.S. does it, so it's okay for China to do it. I mean, it just shouldn't be happening at all. I mean, otherwise there's no meaning. Mm.
2: Yes. Uh, Yes, that's correct. It needs to be implied um, impartially, same rule for all nations, because if we don't do it that way, then it's just uh, not plausible and it's not going to stick Yeah. um, And physically,
3: sorry, physically, what does it look like? So what has Australia um, actually agreed to either provide to this military operation or I mean, where are they going? What are they going to do?
2: Well these are these are all good questions, what's the purpose, what's the military purpose and what are the rules of engagement when mm. our, our military deployed their rules of engagement which set out what they uh, can and can't do, what they must do and what they mustn't do, uh, all that sort of thing but that's all very unclear in this situation so we don't actually know and what are they meant to be achieving. Um, and there doesn't seem to be any time pressure around this. It, I mean, the scheduling all seems fairly laid back. Not um, doesn't seem to be indicating any particular crisis. Um, so there's a, there's been a frigate, um, a some surveillance. I think two surveillance aircraft and some ADF personnel. But um, Australian government seem to have a knack of um, making sure that we're involved in military action, giving it every bit of political support that we can, but not actually doing an awful lot militarily. And that was certainly the case when John Howard committed Australia to the war in Iraq. Our commitments um, were in such a way that our troops were relatively safe. The mortality from our troops in Iraq was, was tiny. Um, You can't compare it to the mortality of the Iraqi civilians or or other forces. Is it just a statement
3: to the U.S. more than anything to say we're on your side? Like, we're not not necessarily going to be providing the, I don't know, on-the-ground support that you need, but we're there for you?
2: It's pretty much like that, yes. The -the on-the-ground support um, is not huge. It has a large symbolic purpose, as you say. And it's a, a desperate plea to the US to to look after us. Um, so it's there's a lot of um, a lot of inconsistency in the in the government statements, and there's a, a lot that we're not not told about mm. what the agenda actually is with this military action.
3: And do you know if it was debated in Parliament, or if there are some ministers who are pushing back on trying to appeal this?
2: No, it wasn't debated in Parliament, and that's a further aspect of all of this. From the point of view of us in Australia, this is all fairly anti-democratic. I mean, if there is an absolute crisis, if the country is under attack and needs to defend itself, then that's one thing you don't necessarily want to wait for Parliament to be recalled. But this is not like that situation at all. There's um, no urgency about this. There's ample time for our parliament, our federal parliamentarians to be debating this and they should be debating this. They should be called on to debate this, but there's no opportunity for that. Um, but we need to be looking at all possible ways of dealing with this situation and there are other things that could sh- and should be done um, uh, s- rather than going to war, well, yes. uh, sending in the military.
0: Okay. Yes, and and even though, as you said, you know, it's not a huge military commitment, we are still there, and so what are the risks for Australia in actually being in the Strait of Hormuz? Well, there
2: certainly are risks if the crisis escalates, which it's likely to. The government's statements, the Defence Minister Linda Reynolds' repeated statements that we're trying to de-escalate this. I mean, that, that's a pretty ridiculous thing to say when you send in the military and say you want to de-escalate it. Yeah. So it's likely to, likely to escalate. Um, it's not likely that um, the US, um, Australia and the UK appear militarily. So Iran backs down and says... Um, Yes and no, sir. What do you want me to do? Mm-hmm. So it's it's likely to likely to escalate, and then who knows? Uh, yes. Yeah, so Australia could actually
0: a... been be drawn into a a full scale war there.
2: Yes. Yes. It's um, def- definitely on the cards. I mean, the, like very... you
0: say, it's ridiculous. I mean, the more military you pour in there, almost the more likely there is to be an accident or an incident.
2: Yes. Yes, that's um, already, uh, that's certainly the case, and already there have been incidents. Um, The exact facts of those matters are disputed as to who did what and who who was provocative and who wasn't. But once this sort of situation is starting to unfold, I guess what we can say is that there is, um, well, what we can say is that the whole thing is unpredictable. The I think it was Robert McNamara who used the term the fog of war, I mean things just get out of control and there's no way that you can tell what's going to happen or what the other side is doing or thinking or planning. One thing that Australia could be doing but doesn't seem to be doing is that Australia does actually have an embassy still in Tehran. The US does not have a diplomatic presence there, so Australia could actually be doing some good diplomatic work to try to defuse this and actually to de-escalate it, which the government says they want. But sending in the military is not the way to de-escalate it. Using our diplomats in the region is the way to try to de-escalate it. But as far as we can tell, that's not happening.
3: Yeah. Gosh, it's such a... It's just such an awful topic. But, and, and the thing is, I know that we've spoken about this briefly as well, and as you said, they, the Australian government said they want to de-escalate tensions. But ultimately, this military operation could lead to huge suffering from civilians. Um, can you talk to us a yep. bit about that?
2: Yes, it could do. And um, as we as we said, if the situation gets out of hand militarily, then that's almost certainly going to impact on civilians. And I think we need to remember every time we use the military these days that civilians are the major casualties of, of modern wars. Um, but I think we need to remember also that even short of... Uh, military conflict, there's the issue of the sanctions which the US has imposed against Iraq. Again, illegally, there is no lawful basis for the sanctions that the US has imposed against Iraq. They're not UN sanctions. Sorry, Sue, you, you
0: meant Iran, right?
2: Oh, I beg your pardon. Yes. Yeah. yes. Yeah. Uh, well, the same situation did apply in Iraq, but... Uh, with the legality, there was it was a little different, um, but the sanctions against Iran, yes, they are illegal sanctions, and they were not imposed um, by the by the UN. And we know that the sanctions are having a bad impact on the people, the ordinary people in Iran. Um, thus far, uh, we know that. Some pharmaceutical products are not getting into the country in the way that's needed. Some cancer drugs, so people with cancers are suffering as a result of the sanctions. Um, and the fact that the US wants to punish any anyone else uh, who will trade with Iran is, is just purely, again, illegal, but it's vindictive. It's no way to conduct our our international relations. We need to respect the fact that Iran needs to trade with other countries, just, as, just the same as all of us do. And if that trade doesn't happen, then the ordinary people are going to suffer. and It's the civilians who will be paying the biggest price for the sanctions.
3: Absolutely. Um, Dr. Suwaram, thank you so much for coming on and talking to us about this today. And I'd really like to invite you back on the show at some point in the next sort of couple of months or couple of weeks, just so that we can keep an eye on what's happening here.
2: Yes, definitely. thank you very much. Alice, thank you. for the opportunity. Thank you, Sue. No problem. Thanks.
3: Have a great day. Thanks. Cheerio. Cheerio. And that was Dr. Sue Wareham from the Medical Association for the Prevention of War. And we were talking about Australia
0: joining the US military operation in the Strait of Hemuz. And it's interesting because coming from the Medical Association, you know. The, uh, the thing about drugs not getting through, you know, treatments, cancer treatments, that kind of thing. It, that sort of um, information often gets lost mm. in the, when we think about, well, there are these sanctions and people can't trade. But what actually does that look like on the ground? And that's what Sue spelled out for us, uh, you know, very clearly. So it was great to have her on the show. It really was.
3: And we're just going to take a quick break. And then when we come back. I we'll
0: be t- speaking to Juliet
3: Fox. Absolutely.
4: Gilang,
0: gilang, gila banjar molele. Didn't recognize that it was the week, it was the um, Timor Leste National Anthem or Pro, I think it's Patria it's called, or Fatherland. Well, we have to do something about that father in there, but (laughs) (laughs) nonetheless. Um, So, Timor Leste or East Timor celebrated 20 years of independence from Indonesia on the weekend. And uh, the event was well covered in the Australian media uh, in in different ways, uh, given, you know, Australia's peacekeeping role there in the early days of independence, a sense of pride. The Prime Minister's presence at the events, uh, but uh, it was also noted that uh, Australia didn't play well around the um, uh, the rights to oil in the East Timor Sea. And, uh, of course, the whistleblower who um, has exposed Australia's uh, tapping of a spine, really, on the East Timor delegation during mm-hmm. those... Um, during those negotiations. So w- there was praise for Australia. There, was also, there were also protests as well. But certainly East Timor was in the news over the weekend and it was wonderful to see the families and people out in the, during those celebrations. But closer to home, I discovered last week that um, Juliet Fox, uh, who is the project manager here at 3CR, had spent a year in Timor-Leste, just two years after the independence, Yeah, So she was in there quite soon after, would have no doubt seen some of the effects still there uh, of the the conflict. And um, she went there as an Australian Volunteer International to provide support for a community radio station. Since then, she's completed a PhD, so we can call her doctor, and uh, written the book, Community Radio's Amplification of Communication for Social Change. So, of course, I wanted to find out more, (laughs) and I caught up with Juliet at the station last Friday and began by asking her, why did she choose community radio as a topic for her Ph.D.?
5: i just finished a Master's in Global Media Communication. The content that was delivered as part of that Master's did not deal with community radio and community media and all of the richness that that involves. I was interested in doing a PhD and I had a supervisor... And it was therefore logical to focus on community radio.
0: So you decided to embark on this project and you've looked at two stations in detail, 3CR in Melbourne and RCL, Radio Mm -hmm. Comunidad Los Los Palos. Palos.
5: So why these two stations? I was focused on places that I already was familiar with, where there was trust and a relationship and most importantly that I had already contributed to those stations. I'm a staff member here at 3CR, I've been a volunteer in the past and similarly at RCL I worked there as an Australian volunteer international. I wanted to go back to RCL to include them in my research in order to document the amazing work that they're doing but also I really didn't want to focus on just issues in Australia I wanted to expand it out because I do think that it's very important that research of this type is looking at how community radio manifests in different environments.
0: I had the sense that RCL is a more rural context. Is
5: that right? It's a very small town in the far east of East Timor. So if you can picture the island kind of towards the pointy end of it in a province called Laotem, and it's the capital there, but it is very rural and a stark difference to somewhere like 3CR. One of the differences... For RCL, is that they are really one of the main media outlets in town.
0: Right, Where is it, 3CR, whereas at 3CR, there's obviously, a lot of the we're yeah.
5: in a very big city and um, yes. there's a lot of other media, whereas RCL really performs a very critical function in distributing very basic information about what's going on.
0: So where does one start a PhD looking at two community radio stations in two different
5: countries? I was interested in stepping back and asking the question, what's going on here? Which is obviously not a very good research question. So my research question was... How and in what ways does community radio contribute to communication for social change? I was going from the standpoint that there's amazing things going on here. Why And to do that, you listen
0: to a week's programming for each station. I thought that was fascinating. We'll come back to that. Interviews with station workers and a questionnaire for listeners. So it's a rich data
5: set that you worked with. I did historical documentation. I did interviews with founders, contemporary interviews, on-air mapping and listener questionnaires at both stations, although my interviewee numbers were higher at 3CR than they are at RCL, just purely because one station, 3CR, is much bigger and older than the other one.
0: As you were starting out, you decided to ask the National Archives of Australia for any ASIO files related to 3 cr why did you go there?
5: At the start of 2014, when I was starting that first phase of going through historical documentation, one day I just thought, as a fishing exercise, why don't I see whether there are any files at ASIO? To be honest, I assumed that there were none. So I put in a request, and also because I was a researcher, I was able to put in that request. okay, yes. You had a
0: university behind you. That's right. So I put
5: the request in in March of 2014. They got back to me saying that they were unable to notify me of a decision, but that they would continue to process my application. Some months later, I was told that there were files and again, it was quite a surprising moment. I was on the tram coming home (laughs) from work and this is maybe like a year later and I had a call from someone from the National Archives of Australia saying, I'm so sorry, it's taken us so long to process your request. I just need to clarify, do you want the files on 3CR community radio or the Community Radio Federation. And that was the first that I knew that there were even files. And so there's 10 volumes of 3CR Community ten Radio. 10 volumes. I ten mean, volumes. that seems incredible. Like, how yeah. many pages are we it's talking about? It's about 1,800 pages.
0: For what kind of time period? From
5: the period of 1976 to 1989. So there were 10 volumes under the title of 3CR Community Radio Victoria Propaganda Methods. And there was one volume just under the Community Radio Federation. By the time I got them, it was 18 months later, I was in the second year of my PhD. It was never going to be the focus of my PhD. It was just an exercise in seeing what they had So I didn't really make full use of them. So if there's a researcher out there somewhere who would like to, they're all now publicly available, and I did have to pay for that process.
0: So any of us could now look them up? Yeah, you
5: can look them up. There's a PDF online. You can look through them. They're a pretty haphazard record of what was going on. There's a focus on communist or Marxist-Leninist groups within the station as opposed to the actual activities at the station. They are alarming, I would say. and Alarming in what sense? The level of surveillance of people that was occurring at that time through people attending meetings or bugging phone calls. And obviously all of it really raises the question of what's going on now.
0: And it does raise the question of what's wow. going on now, <laughs> yeah, and uh, with all the, you know, the anti-terrorist legislation, and we know about the raids on the ABC and News Corp. journalist Anika Smethurst, and also what's happening with whistleblowers. Yeah, just going and very related to East Timor, actually. Yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah, I mean, it's it, what is going on now because the powers have increased since 9-11 and, and so yes we're um, checking out those maybe there's Alice a folder. I can see. maybe there's a folder on us right now oh well I, I'm not sure you know but I, I mean I don't think have <laughs> we have we I don't know <laughs> I <reckon> so, <laughs> who absolutely. knows who yeah. knows yeah. 3CR we're being yeah. spied on yeah so uh, so Alice you can Get, you can download those files. I'm going to. Yeah, yeah I, I, you I said that d- feeling. Really just watching your face. I know. Yeah. I was like, no, I'm, I'm <laughs> going to look
3: through these files. I want to see yes. what they were <laughs> spying on 3CR about and what well, they collected.
0: Yeah, very interesting. And um, just for people who've just tuned in, we've been speaking with uh, Dr. Juliet Fox, as a researcher, writer. And project manager here at 3CR about her new book, Community Radio's Amplification of Communication for Social Change. So there we were just talking about, you know, how she started the research and, and, and into looking at two stations. She didn't compare them. She was just looking at what the different stations did and their structures. And uh, so now we're going to hear, and as part of that, she actually listened in on a week's programming in each of the stations. And um, so now we're, I asked her, you know, what did she find out and, uh, you know, why did she do that listening exercise? So we'll just hear more now from Juliet Fox.
5: It was important to take a look at what was actually produced at each station, to have a look at what was on air.
0: And you did it in the, within the same year, but not in the same month. I mean, for obvious practical That's
5: right. reasons. So for 3CR, I just picked a random week in November of 2014, obviously with the consent and knowledge of the station. There's about 214 hours. Of that, I think there were around 134 that were actually unique shows, that is shows that weren't repeated or shows that weren't from external sources. So did
0: you mainly look at
5: those 134 hours? I looked at everything, Mm -hmm. but I focused on, on those ones. And I was looking to see what sort of themes were covered, who was having a voice. At RCL, that was more of a challenge because that was all done in a variety of different languages. Oh, really? What Um, what, what languages? So they mainly broadcast in Tetum. There's still a little bit of Indonesian as well, and there's also a local language there called Fataluku. Um, Again, they don't broadcast much in that language, but there was some programming in Fataluku.
0: Which you would expect in a community radio station. That's right, right? yeah. Yeah.
5: In fact, some of the listener surveys, I recall um, people really wanted more content in Fataluku, but it's quite challenging, say, writing a news report and then voicing that in a language that's not very well documented in that way. And I know that when I had that year in Timor, that was a great challenge for the young people who I was working with. I'm assuming a less resourced station as well. Yeah, Yeah, I mean, Timor is an extremely poor country Mm -hmm. and that's then obviously reflected in a community radio station facilities and resources.
0: And then there would have been community radio programs here at 3CR as well in language.
5: I didn't have some huge pool of money that I could get everything translated. So what I decided to do was to approach all the community language programmers, explain what I was doing and say that I would be in the studio during that week and that I would be asking them questions before, maybe during if there was a chance and after, about what was on their show. I sat Mm. in the corner quietly. I caught up with people beforehand. Obviously, a lot of people I already know. So again, it wasn't some strange researcher from nowhere with unclear (laughs) intentions, I remember being really amazed at the incredible content that all of our community language programs produce week in, week out, the amount of information that they Mm. are delivering in their local languages through Mm -hmm. these shows and the types of issues that they manage to cover.
0: With regard to the listener questionnaire... You were interested in two main questions. A time when listening to 3CR or RCL changed your views or made you more aware of an issue. And the second was to describe a time when listening to 3CR or RCL made you more active with an organization or an issue. So this is on the ground. What difference is it making? What did you find?
5: How that came about that I put those questions into my research set was that Bevan Ramsden, one of my very early interviews, said to me, so how are you tracking the listeners, you know, because really that's what we want to know. So I had 56 listener responses for 3CR and 14 for RCL. It just built up more evidence of the extraordinary impact that content on these stations has for people listening, reinforcing some of their beliefs, but they never hear that anywhere else. A reality that they're familiar with is actually reflected back to them by things that they listen to on the radio like, oh, I've never heard voices from that community or I've never heard people speak about that issue or that made me go to my local community garden or all sorts of different circumstances that people describe. Yes, it did change the way I thought about that. And yes, it did make me do this.
0: Were there any big surprises during the research, perhaps other than the ASIO, which we've already talked about? Were there any other things that you hadn't thought about or that just came out of the blue?
5: Even though I was very familiar with both of the stations, I was trying to be open to what I was going to be receiving from my founders, from my contemporary interviews, from listening and from the listeners And I then did try and step back from it and try and look at what were the key themes that emerged. Depths of feelings about the actual physical place of the station and the importance around being able to enter into a physical place that community interacts in. To hear it from a whole set of different angles can be a bit surprising. So I think there were things. The other thing that somewhat surprised me was the level of Anguish is a a strong word, but anguish that was still experienced by people who had been involved in conflict at 3CR in the early years and that that was still very deeply felt. I suppose I hadn't really considered that something that had happened so long ago would still be upsetting for people. So that was another
0: surprise. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, no, I understand that. And it seems to me you've occupied two positions, at least two, in this research that of the outsider, insider, the researcher and the researched, how did it feel to subject it to organisations that you've committed time and parts of your life to, to subject it to the academic gaze?
5: It felt good, to be honest. It felt like I was doing something really important, and that is documenting the incredible work that occurs each and every day at a place like 3CR or at a place like RCL. Hopefully some of that documenting and critical thinking around what exactly is going on here can feed into further understanding about the potential role that community radio can have in contributing ultimately to a better society. And media, as we know, plays a central role within that, and community radio is unique in what it can contribute to communication for social change.
0: Well, if you're listening, well, of course you're listening. (laughs) You can feel good about being a listener here at 3CR, and um, if you're involved, if you're a volunteer, if you're working here, it's great to have someone, just as Juliet said, step back. And look at what's going on. Take a moment to reflect. As, as Alice said, as you said, at the very beginning of the show, it's pretty hectic, mm. you know, getting shows together. And, uh, you know, she talked about week in, week out. You know, it, it's a huge commitment. So it was great to, to hear what Juliet found. And there's lots, lots more in that book. Lots more. I mean, it's just even, i haven't read all of it in detail, but I have a, a certainly an overview, and I've read some sections in detail. So, congratulations to Dr. Juliette Fox. Yeah, congratulations Juliet. on the on the book. Thank you for revealing more for us around 3CR and also to, uh, Timor-Leste RCL there. So, yeah, terrific.
3: I really enjoyed that. Yeah, great interview, you
0: Oh, uh, yeah. Well, thanks so, so much to Juliette. So um we're we're going now uh, to do another interview and it's it's really about um well not so much an interview even it's about me getting out and about and and uh, some great work that's been done by um Omar Musa who you may or may not have heard of and uh, but I hope you have so I he, haven't heard of Imam Musa well I saw him first uh, with birds uh, aboriginal um, singer rapper hip hop person and uh, I was really intrigued then to see, I mean, they were, it was a great combination seeing them both together. And then a friend just called me out of the blue and said, you know, he's got a show in town and I've got a spare ticket. So I was, I was. in fact, I was sitting in the studio when I heard the news. And the show was called Since Ali Died. Now, you know who Muhammad Ali is? Yeah,
3: I'm aware of, yeah, the great Muhammad, Muhammad Ali. Ali. The
0: great boxer, American yeah. boxer. and one What of th- is
3: it? Dance like a butterfly, sting like a bee. That's right, Classic. you've got it.
0: And what and, and I think what a lot of people also know is that he was a draft resistor. He refused to be drafted. Yeah, yeah. And it's all over um, the web, so you can see this. But I just wanted to play a little bit of of his comment on uh, on the war in Vietnam and why he didn't go.
4: My counsellors won't let me go shoot my brother or uh, some darker people or uh, some poor, hungry people in the mud big powerful America and shoot them for what? They never called me nigger. They never lynch me. They never put no dogs on me. They never robbed me of my nationality, raped and killed my mother and father. Well, I'm going to shoot them for what? How I going to shoot them? Them little poor little black people, little babies and children, and women. How can I shoot them poor people? I'm just take me to jail.
0: And yeah, so wow. he was yeah, making his statement there. And so, you know, and of course, we're all very inspired by him uh, when all of this was taking place. But then what you find is someone in Australia, um, an Australian or a Malaysian Australian man, but born in Australia, He, he, uh, Omar Musa claims the Malaysian uh, part of his heritage as well. And uh, he says what's really interesting is the hyphen. Between Malaysian and Australian, um, so the show, his show, was called "Since Ali Died," and I thought, is he talking about Muhammad Ali? And indeed, he was. So we're just going to hear one of his songs. This was in the show, and it's called "Since Ali Died." <laughs>
4: I was 9 years old. A kid in the schoolyard told me that my skin was the same color as shit. I went home in tears, and for the only time in my life I told my parents that I wished I wasn't brown. They sat me down and told me to be proud of being Muslim, to be proud of my skin, even if other people put me down for it, but I don't think it sunk in. A few weeks later my dad began to show me footage of a charismatic handsome black boxer from america a proto-rapper who spat rhymes and cracked jokes who drove a pink cadillac who drove white america into a frenzy who stood up for his people and his convictions all the while dancing on the canvas like no one before and no one to come and he was muslim like us and proud of it and when he said he was the greatest when he said he was the prettiest What I took from it wasn't just some petty brag. It was that black was beautiful in a world that told him it wasn't. I wasn't black, but he taught me that my skin wasn't the same color as shit. It shone brighter than gold. I could never be a boxer. But I could have that unfuckwithable attitude. I could be fearless. I could be proud. What I'm saying is that for me, Muhammad Ali was a circuit breaker. And that's what I want to be. For people who feel demoralized, demonized, and dehumanized. For people who have been kept silent for so long that they believe staying silent is inherent in their nature. Muhammad Ali died in June 2016. I sat in a bar in Redfern and cried my eyes out. It may sound stupid, but it feels like that event threw my world into a tailspin. I saw the world held ransom by a tangerine fascist. Loved ones died and got locked up. Chemical white moons pulled at my tides. I met her. I lost her. My sanity turned into a runaway. I chased over the curvature of the earth. As I ran over the atlas, I saw the indestructible human spirit hell-bent on destroying itself since Ali died. You know that Muhammad Ali made the shortest poem in the English language? It simply reads, me, we. And that's where the alchemy is that briefly allows us to see the truth. That's what art is a filament in the darkness connecting me to you me we
0: omar musa the wonderful poet and he has three uh, books of poetry um, i'm not sure where you can actually get his books but i think if you go on the web like everything you can yeah the the show was inspiring amazing standing ovation great to be there yeah yeah
3: I really like that he um he's dedicated that to Ali, and you get to find out a little bit more about him. I mean, I don't know that much about Omar Musa anyway, so to be let in into his world for a little bit and to see his hero through his eyes, that was great.
0: Yes, it was. Mm. Yeah, it was a great show. Mm-hmm. Osibisa, um, and think about the people. And Osibisa is an Afrobeat band founded in London in 1969 by four expat African and three Caribbean musicians. Oh, cool! Uh, yeah, so the music is a fusion of African, Caribbean, jazz, funk, rock, Latin. Or, I mean, they've got it all. That's they? <laughs> great. They're hitting all, all genres, genres right Great there. groove, yeah.
3: Oh, fantastic! Thanks for introducing us to that one, Judith. That was mm-hmm. awesome. Um and so now we're going to be speaking to playwright Zoe Dawson and I was lucky enough to go to see her play on Friday called Australian Realness. Fantastic. It was it was just brilliant and I was sitting there I mean it was a com- it's a comedy but my god it takes some some twists and turns along the way so it it can keep you completely hooked for an hour and a half it was brilliant. Um so I went with my friend and afterwards we went and we had a debrief we spoke about it and we had I mean my friend had a million questions to ask as well but I'm the lucky one that gets to talk to her today so um, firstly thank you so much Zoe for joining us today
6: oh thank you for having me
3: no worries um, so can you just start by talking to us a little bit about where Australian realness is set what it's about and just giving us a bit of an introduction to the play
6: yeah I can try um, <laughs> yeah so it's set in uh it's set in North Fitzroy in 1997 and very much starts out as a um, pretty typical, very familiar Australian family drama comedy. Um, <clears throat> it's set in quite a familiar setting. It's, it's a very realistic, naturalistic sort of looking um, North Fitzroy house uh, with a kind of you know the kettle that works and the you know sink with running water and all that stuff that we're we're pretty used to seeing on stage um, as a representation of you know what what life looks like. And um, the characters are all pretty familiar too. It's mum and dad. Um, who are welcoming home the, the grown children from the family um, for a family Christmas. And, of course, there's some tensions and there's some kind of uh, insinuations of maybe some family secrets or that things aren't quite um, as sunny and happy as everyone's pretending. And that's mm. where we start.
3: Mm. And, um, and so it's set in the 90s and there's references um uh, melbourne references throughout the whole thing and i was just wondering why why was it placed in the 90s and how much research did you have to do um just based on all those references that are thrown in regarding the gentrification of melbourne
6: yeah um it's a good question the choice to set it in the 90s came came a bit late i think i'd written the first draft um Back in 2017, where it was set contemporary, and it was really just um, the play is dealing with sort of questions of um, classism and privilege, and it and it particularly looks at um, uh, without giving too much away the sort of um, the the reveal that happens, or, or the, the, the thing that sort of most unsettles this family is the re- is the revelation that there's been a family of bogans living in the back shed. Mum and dad have been um, renting out the back shed to supplement their dwindling <laughs> income, and um, <clears throat> so there's this family of bogans and. We wrote it, I wrote it set in the current day and we read it and it felt like these characters, or at least where these characters start, these Bogan characters, it felt quite dated and it felt like, um, we don't really see these characters anymore. Um, and that sort of set me back on a quest to go, alright, these, you know, it felt very, it just felt very 90s. It felt like we, that's when these characters were really kind of full throttle. We had, um, a lot of, uh, working class sort of, um, high comedy slapstick characters on yeah. screen with like Full Frontal and um Comedy Company, uh Kat and Kim, things like this. The um, castle. Kath- it really reminded yeah, castle, me of that humour. Yeah. Yeah, which was 1997, um, which was when that was released. And it felt like it was a real kind of high point in terms of a certain type of representation of working class people that felt very familiar. And so that actually, it led to the uh, play being set in the 90s, but it also led me to kind of go back and do a bit of research and go like, oh, why do these characters still so dated? Why don't we have them on our screens anymore? What's changed? How do we see working class people represented now? And that sort of informed the whole journey of the play, which was, um, which involved kind of cycling through a, a selection of um, stereotypes of the ways in which we see uh, perhaps working-class Australians represented um, in middle-class entertainment.
5: Mm.
3: And how are working-class people um, presented in theatre at the moment or from your research, what have you found?
6: <clears throat> um, well, I feel that, the, like I said, that really high um, comedy isn't quite as common anymore. Um, I was looking particularly at um, film and TV but, yeah, also theatre and I was interested in the um, the ways in which working-class characters have started to occupy horror more um, in the mm. last... I mean, they've always had a place in um, a kind of wake-and-fright Australian um, vernacular of horror but particularly this kind of very realistic, gritty drama like um, Snowtown and uh, Animal Kingdom, um, even something like John Jarrett of Wolf Creek and just thinking about how that the same kind of person or the same character, the same look with the you know, Salina shirt, how we got from Dale Kerrigan in the castle to John Jarrett in Wolf Creek and what the what it says about oh. the last twenty years of Australian history and, and how maybe uh middle class um uh attitudes have perhaps changed towards towards working class people. Mm. That was that was the sort of thesis that I started to um started to look at and embed within the play.
3: Yeah. And why do you think it's important to talk about class in theatre? And do you feel there is classism in Australian theatre?
6: Yeah, um, I do definitely, and that was de- um, definitely where the play sort of sprung from was from seeing a lot of um, a lot of middle class families represented on Australian stages, the sort of as the kind of centre or the kind of norm. Um, and not coming from a middle class background myself, I so I always felt like. Um yeah it always it always sort of made me feel on the outer and um it made me think well you know no wonder my family don't come to the theater cuz it's not really about them um and just the, yeah that idea of who the audience is um but I definitely wrote this play for a kind of I had a question at the start of the process where I was like Use this is this a play for a middle class audience who comes to the theater already um, or is this a play to try and get a new audience in who maybe don't come to the theatre? And I ended up going with the former and writing something for the kind of existing audience that already sees theatre and um, and to, to to sort of encourage uh, them to question or us to question what yeah how we view how we're used to viewing um, working class characters what feels familiar what feels foreign um, and try to sort of push that a little bit and 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 play with that to to bring up some more
3: questions I guess. Mm. I mean I thought it was interesting because you definitely um there were there was a lot of fun poked at the middle class family mm. for some views that they were having or the fears of becoming part of the working class and losing wealth. Um, And I'm from the UK, and so class in the UK is a really big um, thing, and it's distinguishable, and people are obsessed with it. Um, So I found it really interesting um, going and finding out a little bit more about the class and perhaps the fear of losing status in Australia. Um, Yeah. And do you feel like um, you've experienced any confronting questions about maybe some of your own prejudice or your own class history while you were writing the play
6: oh that's a good question um i I love that you bring up that you're from the uk because of course it's such a different um a conversation and relationship to class and i always love going to the uk because it's because it's so much more it feels so much more part of everyone's identity Mm -hmm. in a really open way whereas i feel like in australia we have a sort of myth of... Um, because, you know, it, and certainly white Australia coming from this convict mentality, this kind of idea of the underdog, and I think there's a bit of a myth of um, egalitarianism and we're all the same and um, we don't... Yeah, this this myth that we don't have really have a class system. Um, but I certainly... Yeah, I definitely had to confront... Um, elements of my own prejudice because I come from a working class background but now working in the arts I'm there I'm in a completely different class and I'm I don't have a lot of money but I have a lot of cultural capital and I have a lot of um social privilege and social mobility um just through what I do and yeah so it definitely had me interrogating that and I think that you know at the heart of it that's that sense of duality and of feeling like I'm kind of not belonging to either group or that sense of sort of um feeling like a bit of a class trader but also feeling like a kind of class outcast in some way is mm. definitely at the heart of I think the, the the play and the reason I wanted to do it was to sort of tackle those questions and figure out like where I am and who I am and where I fit in.
0: Yeah and it's Judith here I I just wanted to say that I think entering into that really tricky territory generates some really interesting conceptual thinking some ideas and also really great theatre oh great thank you that's really nice
6: to
3: hear and it's Mm -hmm. true and and the questions were and you do leave with these confronting questions when you see Australian realness 100 percent um and and it is a comedy, and I laughed, and I I oh, completely, cool. yeah, was wetting myself at some points. But it doesn't stay like a super comedy play for very long. You get these twists, and you get these turns, and it, and it, and it does turn quite dark. And mm. so without giving away anything, obviously, no spoilers here, mm. but can you just talk to us a little bit about the uh, end of the play, or towards the end? And and yeah. your style and and perhaps why you why you chose to create something completely almost thriller.
6: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, I think um, first of all it relates to that idea I said before about tracing our kind of tracing class representation. And so I wanted to. I knew that I kind of wanted to <clears throat> explore elements of like the nineties the nineties sitcom Bogan, who's very funny and very harmless and very sweet. Um this kind of broad stereotype, I really wanted to sort of put that center stage and 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 make it really heightened and um but i also and I wanted to somehow find a way to also incorporate <clears throat> ideas of of the the more john Jarrett um wolf creek sort of representation uh to kind of chop a reed and so and and putting those in kind of one body or one character to show a sort of um, almost like a class dysmorphia or something um, so I think there's a sense in the play of, of time like it's playing with time and um, how fast time goes um, and we see the play through the eyes of the um, middle class daughter um, <clears throat> and that was a very deliberate decision to kind of put uh, to sort of frame it as a, as a sort of I see the play as like a middle class nightmare is how I describe it or wow. how I thought of it dramaturgically through the process like if this is if this is a middle class, nightmare of what maybe what has happened in the last 20 years but also like the worst I you know the the uh, the fear of working class and what would happen next and what would be the what would be the scariest thing to happen um so that was the sort of questions I just had in my head as I was writing the end of the play and trying to work out where to land and and what felt like a um the you know what felt like a genuine representation of how I feel about um class at the moment or or, you know, where I, where I sort of landed after mm. all, um, I did a lot of research in this play, but I guess, to yeah, not give anything away. Like, <laughs> yeah. I, at the end of the play, I don't really, um, I certainly don't have a, a concrete answer of of what what class is or what class looks yeah. like in Australia. Um, I can only really speak from my experience, but mm. also I think in the, in the contemporary moment, it is quite hard to get a handle on truth and, you know, there is all that writing about, you know, we're in this post-truth world now um, mm. where where artifice and representation and um, how things appear have almost taken over importance from, mm-hmm. from what is true and, and facts and, you know, trying to research his play and research politics was interesting um, because there there's just so many... Di- it's like opinion has kind of taken over from fact, and um, even just trying to find out facts and... Um, Figures and statistics about like what class actually looks like and how we define it is really tricky and slippery on the internet like there's people pushing different agendas and it's it's really hard to kind of grasp a core yeah. um reality so i I think I wanted to to honor that honor the truth of that um experience in in the play somehow
4: mm. of not being
6: able to completely um figure out you know. Of what it is to live in uncertainty and not really knowing.
3: Yeah, and it's yeah, it's absolutely great. And I, as I said, I saw the show on Friday, and me and my friend had a huge debrief session after oh, because cool. there is it, it. It leaves you um, with questions, and the answers that you can come up with, you come up with by yourself. Um, and I, I love that yeah. about I love that about theatre, um, where you yeah. can actually just dis- almost decide the the ending. For for yourself, um, yeah, and it's exactly. great. It's a bit of a test. Yeah, no, I I love it, and we haven't even said where it is, how we can go and watch it, or how the listeners can get a ticket if they want to. So, can you just talk to us a bit about yeah, how long it's on for, and where we can go and yeah. see it?
6: Yeah, absolutely. Well, we're just heading to our last week now. So it's been on um, for uh, two weeks, I think, at Malthouse Theatre, which is in South Bank. Um, so it's one more week. Uh, we're playing this week, Tuesday to Sunday. Um, and you can get tickets on their website, which is malthousetheatre.com.au, uh, I believe. <laughs> um, we'll put yeah, that link your... up
1: on
3: our
6: website yeah, as well. Yeah, great. <laughs> I was
1: like, <laughs> .au. Um, Yeah, so
6: tickets online um, or, or on the phone booking line as
3: well fantastic and thank you so much for joining us oh thank you and um, lovely. have a lovely day you too
6: thanks so much for chatting me
3: about it no worries bye bye and that was zoe dawson playwright of australian realness and that leads us
0: to the end of the show yeah so big thank you to all the people who contributed to the show today and a particular shout out to juliet fox because it was so good dr fox yeah dr fox it's so good to hear from her and everyone else Stay tuned for Women on
2: the Line. 3CR relies on the support of ethical organisations to keep our vital community of voices on air. And we'd like to thank our breakfast supporters, the new international bookshop, NIBS, at Trades Hall. You can check them out at nibs.org.au. And if you'd like more information on how your organisation can become a 3CR supporter, contact the station on 03 9419 8377.
0: Thanks for listening to a Monday Breakfast podcast on 3CR.